This morning we have two Bible readings, both from the New Testament. The first one comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 23-24. It's on page 904 of the Pew Bible. These writings were delivered by Apostle Paul and to the people in the city of Colossae, known as the Colossians. Work willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward, and that the master you are serving is Christ. The second reading comes from Matthew chapter 22, two lots of verses, first of all 15 to 22, and then 34 to 37, and it's on page 753 on the Pew Bible. The first reading comes under the subheading, Taxes for Caesar. When the Pharisees met to plot how to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested, they sent some of their disciples, along with supporters of Herod, to meet with him. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You teach the way of God truthfully. You are impartial and you don't play favourites. Now tell us what you think about this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus knew their evil motives. You hypocrites, he said. Why are you trying to trap me? Here, show me the coin used for the tax. When they handed him a Roman coin, he asked, whose picture and title is stamped on it? Caesar, they replied. Well then, he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. His reply amazed them and they went away. The second section is under the subheading, The Most Important Commandment. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. May these readings be a blessing to us all as we hear the message based on these readings. Let's pray. Lord, I'm very conscious of being a man of unclean lips. So what right do I have to deliver this message? It is only if you bless it, if you speak into our hearts that it has any value at all. Otherwise, I'm just a clanging gong or clashing cymbal. So my prayer is that you speak to each of us, not through my words, but through your spirit. Amen. I have spoken before, I think, of Jordan Peterson. Does everybody know who Jordan Peterson is? 
A, a very quick uh, explanation of Jordan Peterson. He, he's a clinical psychologist and academic and a popular self-help communicator. Perhaps you might call him a self-help guru. The principal tenant of Jordan Peterson's teaching is that we should take on responsibility. Now, not responsibility for great causes, but responsibility for ourselves. So personal responsibilities. I need to be responsible for what I do, for who I am, and even for my circumstances. His argument is that you cannot move forward in life unless you take those responsibilities. That's the first step to making any improvement. So if I want to be a better person, the first thing I have to do is take responsibility for where I am now. Now, he became politicised as a result of a stand he made for free speech. Well, actually, more correctly, against compelled speech. And the furore that surrounded that brought him to a much wider audience than he might otherwise have had. And as a result, more people accessed his teaching and he became more popular than previously. Now, exhortations on responsibility don't sound like a topic likely to draw a large following. But that's what he's achieved. So not surprisingly, many interviewers have asked him, why are you so popular? What is so popular about your teaching? His reply goes along these lines. Well, for 60 years, the narrative has been exclusively about rights. You pick up the paper in the 60s, and you would find rights talked about a lot. You would find protests for various rights talked about a lot. The same applies today, whether it be in any of the mass media or any of the social media. Rights are presented, but you don't see any talk about responsibility. Well, what was wrong with that? What, what, what's wrong with ignoring responsibility? Well, if the public narrative is just about responsibility, his argument is, where do you find meaning? If rights, if rights dominate the conversation, then society is going to end up heading towards a culture of instant gratification the object of life becomes pleasure. And I become the centre of the universe. And my rights become the centre of the universe, or the centre of my universe anyway. Now that's quite an attractive idea to many, but it leads to chaos and catastrophe and even murderous outcomes. Because ultimately, no ethical, moral or legal law remains safe because my rights trump everything. That is an extremely dangerous position for society, and ultimately for me. The reality is that rights are paired with responsibilities. 
There are no rights without responsibility, is the way Peterson puts it. So, effectively, he's balancing the narrative, and that resonates with people. And that's why he's so popular. Now, we all intrinsically, at some level of our understanding or our being, know that rights bring responsibility. The idea is ensconced in our psyche and even in our language. What do you understand by the expression, he's a real gentleman? Can I have a reply? He's a decent man. He's a real gentleman. means he's a decent man. He's a good man. A good man who adheres to a more rigorous code of behaviour than the majority of mankind. A man with better morals than the rest of us and who lives them out. A man to admire and respect. He is in some way of better character than the rest of us. More trustworthy, more honourable, more loyal, more honest. Generally more worthy. Well, C.S. Lewis wrote lamenting this understanding of the word gentleman. And he lamented it because it represents a loss of meaning. You see... The word gentleman originally meant a man who owned property. And that was all it meant. Well, more specifically, I suppose, a man who owned enough property for it to support him. So he didn't actually have to work. Now, that gave some real information about the man. Or more specifically, about the man's circumstance. He had property income of at least a certain level. Now that's concrete information about a man. This other meaning of gentleman that we use nowadays simply means you think of him as a good man. So it's expressing your opinion of the man. And good or worthy or any other of a host of adjectives would do equally well to describe your opinion. So you see, gentleman has taken on the meaning that is in a host of other words. So it becomes effectively surplus to our language. It's lost its original meaning. C.S. Lewis lamented that. So... How did we get this meaning to the word gentleman? Well, isn't it because there was an expectation that a gentleman should behave in a certain way? In fact, that he should follow a code of conduct that was more rigorous than others, simply because he had the right over some property. In other words, the rights he had placed a responsibility on him in the common thinking. It was commonly thought that if a man owned property, 
He should behave in a certain way. He had a responsibility in behaviour. Now, whether he fulfilled that responsibility or not is a different question. And what really matters to us is that the word gentleman gradually came to mean the characteristics and behaviour or conduct that a gentleman should have and should display. Now, the same thing has happened to the word Christian to some degree. The main difference being that the original meaning of gentleman has almost been forgotten and is certainly never used now. So we see enshrined in the word gentleman and in its current use the thought that a man of property with the rights that that confers should behave in a certain way and that is his responsibility. Now this is all very well as far as it goes but to me it stops short. Responsibility must be for something and to somebody, or at least some entity or idea. I, if I have a responsibility, it must be a responsibility to somebody else, for something, or someone. Take the example of a babysitter. A babysitter has responsibility to the parent, and responsibility for the child. Note the responsibility is conferred by the parent to the babysitter. Now Peterson's lectures are about taking responsibility for yourself, but as far as I can ascertain, do not talk too much about who that responsibility is toward, unless it's also to yourself. But I think this is only partially true. Because the question posed in my mind is, who am I ultimately responsible to? And what am I ultimately responsible for? So perhaps we should ask the question, what is the first responsibility conferred on man? And what are the attendant rights? Anybody like to offer a suggestion? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, strength and being. Basically, all my being, yeah? Good. Any other suggestions? What happens in Genesis? Let's go back and look at it. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then the Lord God said, Let us make man in our own image, in our own likeness, and let him rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And you get the same thing repeated in chapter 2 and verse 7. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So the first gift God gave man, <coughs> mankind excuse me, was the right to life. And with that he granted man dominion over the earth and its creatures. 
Now that's both another right and perhaps it's suggested there is also a responsibility. Genesis verse 21. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And the creatures will have every green plant for food. Genesis 2, 8 and 9. The same kind of message. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man he had formed and the Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And then if you jump to verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. Or in the old language, to tend it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now note, here we have the completion of the right to life. You know, the gift of life is nothing without the means to sustain it. So God confers this right of sustenance in the provision of food. But attendant on this is a responsibility to tend the garden. And there's another responsibility. Not to eat the potentially unsafe fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is a proviso here. If you fail in your responsibility to leave the knowledge of good and evil alone, then your rights, which really is another word for privilege, will be curtailed. A case of cause and effect. Now it is clear from this that the responsibility here required some effort on the part of man. Work and tend or take care does not necessarily suggest to me that the necessities of life would spontaneously fall into the man's lap. But by and large, the Garden of Eden sounds a pretty cruisy place. But we all know what happens next, don't we? The man and the woman fail in their responsibility to stay shy of the knowledge of good and evil and the consequences are dire. Chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 16, we read the consequences for the woman. I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. And the consequence to the man, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. 
First, we are granted the privilege of life and dominion over the other life forms and the provision of the necessities for life. So we have the right to life, but then the responsibility to tend and care for the things that sustain us. For the garden, representing the earth and the creatures in it. But they failed to exercise self-control, which was the responsibility placed on the man and woman by the commandment to stay clear of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, why do I say that? Well, let's look at the temptation of the woman. Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, also giving some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, I like to make the point that the man was there the whole time, so he has no excuse and he can't really say, the woman you gave me gave me the fruit. What a load of nonsense. But how typical of mankind. Don't we all like to shed blame and put it on somebody else? That's not taking responsibility. I'm suggesting that avoiding responsibility is actually a pretty common response of mankind. So the man and woman gave in to the temptation of the, of the benefits of the fruit. It looked good, tasted good, presumably smelled good, because how else would she know that it would taste good? And would confer some hypothetical benefit, that of wisdom. And ignored, or at least minimised, the very real disadvantage or penalty that came with it. Well, isn't that a failure of self-control? Most temptation at its core, maybe all temptation at its core, is a self-control issue. Now the consequence of that failure to fulfil their responsibility is twofold, actually. Their rights are curtailed or limited. You will surely die. So the right of life is curtailed and the loss of life or death is introduced. And their responsibilities and the difficulties in their responsibilities are multiplied by an order of magnitude with the introduction of pain. Pain for birth. Now, recognise that multiply, sorry, multiplying and filling the earth was part of the commands or responsibilities given to them by God. So the woman's pain in birth is much multiplied. And the man's pain in his work providing for his family is multiplied. Suddenly his tending of the garden becomes not a joy, but a lifelong, toiling, sweating, painful labour. It's very clear from this that life is no longer going to be cruisy. The lazy, easy days of summer are over. Mankind is now burdened with lifelong struggle. This story strongly suggests that the hypothesis that ignoring responsibility is disastrous and dangerous. 
and that ultimately our responsibility is to God and our responsibility is for our behaviour. So the question is, how well do I fulfil my responsibility to God? Next week we're going to look specifically at the two readings that were read for us this morning from this perspective what is our responsibility to God and what is the required behaviour I'd like you all to think about it through the week read those two passages the passage in Colossians and in Matthew and think about it what does it say about my responsibility to God. Just through this week, that our minds would be focused on how we can fulfill best our responsibilities to you. Because when we do that, we will fulfil our responsibilities not only to ourselves, but to others. Amen.